know when you're watching a TV series and the storyline from the previous episode or previous episodes is going to impact what's happening in the episode you're about to watch. They'll often start with previously on Suits or previously on NCIS, as I've shared with you. It's my favourite TV show. And what they'll do is they'll flash a bunch of things that have happened in the previous episodes or previous episode to help you understand what's about to come. I feel like that's how today needs to start because we're entering into Act 5 and 6 of the story. We're coming to the conclusion and the resolution of God's big story. But it is intimately connected to and impacted by what's come before. So, if you're ready, previously on God's big story. In a surprise turn of events, the creator of all that is stepped down into the mess and the brokenness of his creation to start a restoration plan. The God of creation came and dwelt or tabernacled or templed among us. God enters into time and space in the person of Jesus as the overlap of heaven and earth to drastically expand the boundaries of what constitutes the people of God and who has access to him. But in the season finale, the cliffhanger, all hope seems lost when Jesus is killed. He's hung on a Roman cross. But this is not the end of the story. The story continues with the dawn of a new day, an empty tomb and Jesus with a resurrected body. The same and yet somehow different. It's a glimpse of what's to come. This is God's resurrection power on display for all to see. And Jesus appeared to the disciples and many others and he continued teaching about the kingdom of God until the day he returned to the Father. Now Jesus had previously said to the disciples, it's actually better if I go away because if I don't leave the helper, the Holy Spirit won't come to you which should make us pause and consider. This helper must be pretty amazing and powerful if it's better that Jesus goes away so that he can come. Then, as Jesus leaves, he says to his disciples, wait here in Jerusalem, for in just a few days, God's presence and power in the form of the Holy Spirit will come and will go with you. This is really important to the story Because the thing that has always defined the people of God, that defined Israel in the Old Testament and defines the church today, is that we are people of the presence. The presence of God has always been the defining marker, the thing that sets God's people apart. And in the Old Testament, God's presence was seen through a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. And later on, it rested in the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and later still came to rest in the temple. And this was where heaven and earth met, where God's presence dwelt, but only certain people had access. Now, with the coming of Jesus, there was no need for a physical temple because God's very presence was residing with the people in the person of Jesus. He was the new temple, showing everyone a new way to be human. Jesus is God's presence, heaven on earth. And people experienced the presence of God and saw glimpses of the kingdom in the way that Jesus loved in the way he included, the way he healed, the way he restored, the way he reconciled, and the way he forgave. The people who didn't have direct access to God could now meet with him and encounter him in the person of Jesus. And now the New Testament says that those who choose to follow Jesus are an extension of the new temple because the Holy Spirit is at work in and through them. 
So a shift takes place from Jesus with his people to in his people. Jesus' followers become the place where heaven and earth overlap, where people can encounter God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This was God coming to dwell with his people in a new way, and God was doing a new thing. God's dwelling place was no longer in the temple where there was limited access, but in his people, the living temples who he was building together. And he was sending them out into the world to make his story and his presence known. So the coming of the Holy Spirit was God establishing the new community of his people to live out what God had begun. So now Jesus is saying he's going to go back to the Father, and when he does, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So from the very beginning, the church's focus has always been outwards. Now what Jesus did not say is this, he didn't say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to help you establish your own little church where you only have to talk to certain people who are like you and the music will always be exactly to your taste. No, the Spirit is coming, Jesus said, to send you out to all people, to the ends of the earth, to the people who are like you and to the ones who are nothing like you, even to the ones that you wish weren't included. And that is exactly what happened. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, the people heard the message of Jesus in their own languages, and the message of the good news of Jesus spread like crazy. Nothing could get in the way of what God was doing. The death of Jesus couldn't stop it. Language barriers couldn't stop it. Riots, torture, poverty, and any other kind of persecution couldn't stop it. Even the powers of darkness couldn't stop what God was doing. The church spread like wildfire, not because of clever planning, but because the Spirit was moving in power. And at that moment, the Spirit birthed a new community, the church, called to live as God's people in the world in light of a new day when Jesus would come back to put everything right. The Spirit formed these communities of people who met together, who prayed and worshipped together, who ate together and shared everything in common. And they lived in such a way that nobody was ever in need. These were people who chose to live in light of Jesus' death and resurrection in the power of the Holy Spirit. And these Jesus communities were God's chosen way to carry out his redeeming, renewing and reconciling work in the world. And in the book of Acts, we see God breaking in through the Holy Spirit who unleashes his kingdom work through his new community to put the world right. And while they certainly didn't do it perfectly, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the early church outloved the ancient world. They outloved the Roman Empire by picking up and taking care of abandoned babies out of sewers, by looking after the sick, the dying, the desperate, and the rejected, feeding those who were hungry, sharing meals, living simply, and loving generously, working to reconcile people back to God, back to one another, to creation and within themselves. They were signposting a new way of being human, a new way of being community. God establishes a new kingdom people in this world so that they might live for others and invite others to be a part of what he is doing. From day one, the church was sent out with the good news of the kingdom in the power of the Holy Spirit and lives and communities were changed. And we sit here today because of faithful people before us 
who have continued to live in and out of this story. Thanks, so. Out of the six acts, act five is the longest. For almost 2,000 years, generations have, of disciples have passed on their stories and experiences of following King Jesus. And our history since the early church, this great description that Sophie's just given us, our history is better and worse than we like to admit. It's a story that includes shameful acts and greedy leaders, but also amazing sacrifice and generous love. And today we continue to see the struggle and the beauty of Jesus' followers. There are still too many stories filled with grief and trauma, but there are growing glimpses of creative and beautiful expressions of living a new creation life together. And this is where we find ourselves in the story today. Followers of Jesus continuing to ask, how do we live in and out of this story as God's kingdom people today? The church asking, how do we live as the family of Jesus? How do we live as the body of Christ how do we live as the movement that Jesus began? Now, we've been using Clarice Nampajimpa-Paulson's series of paintings called God and People, and the painting that she has created for this act, for Act 5, is called God's Put People in His Family. And she captures for us the story of God and people from Adam all the way through to Jesus. And this grand story is told of God's passionate pursuit of people. And in Jesus, we see God invite us into His Family. And you'll notice in her painting that it's not that just that God just gives us a new title, but that God himself comes and dwells in us. As Sophie has just said, we now live as God's dwelling place, the living temple. And we become God's family. We become God's children. And as Jesus' first followers start, started to figure out what it meant to be Jesus' people, they started to address each other as sister and brother. The relationship between them was no longer defined by status or power or money or race or gender or ability or age, but by their inclusion into the family of God. Slaves and sovereigns became brothers and sisters. Now, this is a powerful story in a world full of stories that separate. And the scariest epidemic in Australia today is not a disease, it's isolation. And here in Jesus' family, we can find belonging, inclusion, restoration, community across generations, community across divides. We can find a place to belong, an invitation to be part of something as more than just friends, as more than just acquaintances, as more than just people socially connected online. But being family... As, a followers, as followers of Jesus, is not just about belonging. It's also about responsibility. The story of God in his grand story is the story of relational risk. In Jesus, God risks everything of himself to reconcile all things. And in the family of God, we are called to love sacrificially, to share generously, to move towards each other and not away from each other, to forgive and seek restoration when we hurt one another, to make room in our friendships and homes, to become family together. This means we take responsibility for one another, for our problems, for our needs, for our kids. We become a village. 
It also means we become responsible for our discipleship. We challenge and encourage one another. We invest in each other. We read the Bible together. We figure out what it means to do this life together. This is no easy calling. It's risky, costly, and it takes practice. It requires followers of Jesus. It requires me. It requires you to commit to a local community because it's only when we get particular about this that we can actually experience what it means to be part of God's family, that we can actually live out what it means to be part of God's family. It's no good just saying, I'm part of God's family. That's true, but there's no way for you to live it out if you're not engaged in some localized expression. We choose one another within that expression because I think there is a way that we could pretend at being family, where we can live out this life and be connected just enough to make us all think that we're family. But part of being the family of God is choosing one another, taking responsibility for one another. And it also means sharing what we have. And we learn from Christians in history the example of what we see in each other, the best of what we see in each other. We, of course, learn from Jesus, giving himself away, Now, being God's new people is not only about belonging as family. It also means living together as Jesus' body. The story of God all through the New Testament describes Jesus as the head of the church and the church is his body. Jesus' first followers began to understand themselves as Jesus' hands and feet and mouth in the world. They figured out that in each local family and across the regions that that, that had been put together, as Jesus' body designed to work together as they lived in community. And it became apparent to them that different members of the body were able to play different roles and that they'd been spiritually gifted in different seasons and different places for particular roles. Different people had been granted gifts from God to live out Jesus' body life. All were called to be servants. All of us are called to be certain servant-hearted. And some, we're told, are called as apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Others were gifted as healers, listeners, speakers, discerners, and more. All with equal honor and all called to live it out as Jesus did, with humility and sacrificial love and service. And across the church family, we see that they organized themselves as they were able to contribute Everyone painted into the body of Christ as co-contributors to the life and work of the church. And not just in their gatherings, as if the Sunday gathering or another expression of it was all we were called to be and do. Followers of Jesus continued to live out their vocations as image bearers and co-creators with God in all sorts of careers and roles and opportunities. But they reimagined it in the light of Jesus and his new creation. They reimagined what it was like to live as slaves and masters, as workers in the city and workers in the field. They wrestled with working in places of power and influence and also wrestled with what it meant to follow Jesus as the body in poverty and places of need. And today, we continue to seek to organize ourselves, to encourage each of us to live out of our vocation, 
to imagine together what it means now to live and work together as the body of Christ, giving our gifts towards one another, together giving our gift to our neighborhood, to the community around us. And the idea of being family of Jesus and being the body of Jesus is not just about building a nice new life with other Christians. Jesus' first followers also knew that they were on mission together. They were sent ones. And they were willing to give up their lives to proclaim the, the new rising of King Jesus, his resurrection, his power, his kingdom, and to invite others into the family of God. The first followers of Jesus and thousands since have risked and given their lives for the cause of King Jesus. Early Christians took seriously the imagination of living as salt and light. Followers of Jesus have a powerful imagination of, of what it means to live as true humanity. In a world full of stories that give glimpses of what that can look like. We as the followers of Jesus have a powerful imagination of what could be because of the reconciliation of Jesus. Our contribution is to bring life and beauty and justice and peace and restoration and light. And so we work together as healers and artists and teachers and community builders and peacemakers and justice warriors and all sorts of other things in our world. Living now as though everything has changed. Because in Christ, it has. But it's not always easy. Followers of Jesus sometimes find themselves, we sometimes find ourselves in shadowy spaces. As we work where the light of the kingdom of God is just beginning to break in. And in our comfortable complacency in the modern West, we've never been more settled and indifferent and complacent to being Jesus' sent ones. And so, we remind ourselves, we rely again on the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Our lives, our family, the body of Christ all relies on the Spirit of God. And so our question as we figure out what we should do and where we should go is, where is the Holy Spirit already at work in and around us? And we organize ourselves around the mission of Jesus so that more people can know Jesus and all things can be reconciled in Jesus. But the story does continue. There's one more question I think we could ask. Why isn't Act 5 over yet? Why after 2,000 years aren't we already in Act 6? The story of God is the story of God patiently and passionately pursuing a people. And even now, God is patiently inviting more people to find life and freedom in Jesus. So we work passionately and patiently towards the day when all things will be made right. So the story, the story isn't finished yet. We live in Act 5 of this story, as Elliot has just said. But the last two chapters of the Bible give us a glimpse of the grand finale of Act 6, of what is still yet to come, the resolution that this story has always been building towards. And I think it's a resolution that we can only just begin to wrap our minds and our imaginations and our language around because it paints a picture that is so big 
a picture of the future that calls us forward and invites us onward and fills us with expectation and anticipation. And I think it needs to be that big in order to lead us to step into and live out of this new reality of God's big story. This future glimpse, imagination, uh, imaginative, imaginative and amazing as it is, is what gives us a certain hope that what God has been doing and is doing will finally come together into a beautiful whole. One of the problems we have when we come to talk about Acts 6 is that when it comes to our imagination of what comes next in the story, of what we usually call heaven, many of us are actually more influenced than we realise by Greek philosophy and medieval art and contemporary advertising than we are by what the Bible actually says. You know, I sometimes wonder whether deep down too many Christians think heaven actually sounds kind of boring. That's certainly what the world around us thinks we believe. How often do you hear people talking about how they'd rather go to hell where all the partying and fun is? That is not God's good story. That is some other story. That is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches. And we need to get the grand finale of God's story right because that's what's going to inspire us and invite us to live into and out of that whole story now. So Clarice Paulson Nampi Jimpa has two pictures, uh, t- two paintings to express Act 6, this glimpse of the future finale to God's story. And both of these paintings, I think, capture and express some really important ideas, ideas that we could spend weeks pondering and ideas that draw together the biblical teaching about what God has in store for all of creation in ways that take us so far beyond the anemic vision that too many people have in our culture that all the future holds is some kind of white fluffy cloudland or the escape of our souls to some netherworld. The first of her painting is this one. It's called People Will Have New Bodies. The hope of God's big story ends with the renewal of our bodies. We will experience resurrection just like Jesus did. The hope we have as followers of Jesus is not of some disembodied, otherworldly existence of our souls in the future. It is the concrete hope of the resurrection of our bodies. Resurrection is a really important word in the New Testament and it means something very specific. The writers of the gospel are actually really careful in how they use this word. They choose this word to explain what has happened to Jesus And they mean something very specific by it. They use the word anastasis, is the Greek word the New Testament uses. And anastasis does not mean coming back to life after being dead. That would be resuscitation or revival. There's another word for that. And that's the word that's used in the Gospels for what happened to people like Lazarus or the widow of Nain's son, who Jesus healed from death. But those people were brought back to life and they lived for a time and then they all died resurrection is a whole other thing anastasis or resurrection is about coming through death and out the other side and being raised to a whole kind of new life that has no end a life that is renewed in every way the life that jesus is living now and our hope is that the kind of new life jesus has been raised to will be ours as well And that renewed life is not just for me, 
but it's for us as a community. In fact, it's for people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue and every generation throughout history. And it's for the whole of creation. The picture we're given in Revelation 21 and 22 is of a new heavens and a new earth. Now, I think we actually have a problem in English here because in our culture, when we say we're getting something new, we normally think of it as being brand new. We live in a world of replacements. If my phone stops working or it just gets a little bit out of date, then I get a new one and I throw my old one away. And so we might think that the Bible is talking about God throwing away the old earth and starting again with a brand new one. But that would be a misreading of the whole story of God. When God makes something new, he doesn't rip it up and start again from scratch. He restores and refines and remakes and renews. We see it in the Bible with the Old Testament and the New Testament. God doing something new in Jesus doesn't mean that we throw away the whole story of the Old Testament. We talked about that just two weeks ago, about all the ways that the Old Testament still speaks today as it is fulfilled and made complete and renewed in Jesus. And we see it when Paul talks about how in Christ we are a new creation. When I became a Christian, God made me new. That doesn't mean he threw my old life in the bin. I am still the me he always created me to be. But I have been renewed and made whole. And that is what God is doing with all of his creation, renewing all the things. The last two chapters of Revelation have lots of echoes from the first two chapters of the Bible in Genesis, the very beginning of the story, because what God is doing, what God began in the Garden of Eden is fully and completely renewed in the new heavens and the new earth, or perhaps better, in the renewed heavens and earth. And so if our hope for the future includes our bodies, our embodied human experience, and it includes the whole of God's good creation and this earth and all the people and creations in it, then surely that should shape how we see those things now. Living in the story of God is not, as some people think, a story of disconnection from the grounded reality of everyday life and all the stuff that it involves. It's not a story that takes place somewhere else. These things matter because they are part of God's purpose, not just now, but forever. Clarice's second painting for Act 6, the final one in her series, is probably my favourite. It's called this, God will always sit with his people in his new country. God will always sit with his people in his new country. Isn't that just a beautiful picture of the culmination of God's big story? You have God sitting down around the fire face to face with his people, all of them in right relationship with him and all of them in right relationship with one another and all of them in right relationship with the whole of his creation. That is a picture of reconciliation. And again, too often people have been tempted to tell the Christian story as if the ultimate goal is for us to escape and go somewhere else. But God's story has always been about a God who wants to come and live with us. The story doesn't end somewhere else. It ends here, although here looks different because it is completely refined and renewed. Clarice pictures it as sitting on country in the ultimate way. 
The Apostle John in Revelation pictures it as the city of Jerusalem coming down renewed in an ultimate way. Because for John and the Jewish people of his day, Jerusalem is the place where God meets with his people and his people experience community with one another and Jerusalem is the centre of God's good creation. And so it makes sense that the best way he can picture it for them is with Jerusalem renewed and renewed in a way that is so much more than they have ever imagined. You have streets made of gold and gates made of pearls and foundations of ruby and emerald and God making his home with his people once and for all. Can I say, if you have never read the last two chapters of the Bible, or if you haven't read them for a while, can I encourage you to just take some time to read or maybe listen to an audio version of those two chapters and be inspired by the pictures that they paint? You you can't treat them as though they are perfectly literal descriptions, but they will encourage you and lift your eyes far beyond visions of angels playing harps on clouds. I just want to read you a couple of verses from Revelation 21, verses 23 to 26 say this, The city, this new Jerusalem, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it, and on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there, and the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. This is one of those parts of the Bible that I must have read many times before I really stopped to ponder, what does that mean? (laughs) I know it's trying to paint a picture of how amazing the renewal of creation will be. But but how does it do that? It's those lines about the nations and the kings of the earth bringing their glory and their splendour into the new creation that have captured my attention. You might have heard me talk about this before because, again, too often I have imagined God's new creation as something brand new, as if God is somehow going to start again. But these verses suggest that all the good things, all the wonderful things, the things from every nation on earth throughout history will be brought into the new creation. That the new creation will start with all the beauty and wonder that human beings as co-creators with God have brought about so far. Now, it does go on to say that there will be a refining of all those things so that anything impure or oppressive or violent will be stripped away. But what does that leave? What is the glory and honour of nations? I imagine all the art and all the literature and all the food and all the culture and all the history and all the architecture and all the scientific knowledge and all the poetry and all the love and all the care and all the community, all the things that make human life so wonderful and that reflect the image of the good God in whose image we were created. Those are the starting point of the renewed creation and the story goes forward from there. I find this really helpful when people ask questions like, will we eat in the new creation? Or will we recognise each other? Or will my dog be there? I don't know all the answers. But these verses make it pretty clear that all the good things of this world are not lost or wasted or thrown away that our experience of living in the new creation cannot in any way be less than our experience of living now. That is a picture that should inspire and excite us. It's a picture that aims to draw us forward, that makes us long for the day when that will be and that invites us to co-create with God now in ways that work towards and anticipate what that will be like. Because the story ends consistent with how it began. 
and how God has been speaking and working and inviting throughout every act, every chapter and every scene. We have a good God who has beautifully designed this world for good despite our rebellion and who continues to invite us to partner with him, revealing himself and coming among us in the person of King Jesus, empowering us with his spirit to live out his mission and leading us forward towards the day when he will once and for all set all the things right. This is God's big story. And this is our story now. And this is the story that we invite everyone else into. We live in the power of King Jesus and his resurrection. We have the Holy Spirit. And we are the temple that he is building. How are we living out of this identity and power? Where are we seeing it in each other? Let's celebrate where we see it. And let's have the courage to embrace who we are in King Jesus. And we now live together as family and practice a new kind of love. We are his body. As we participate in his kingdom, we give ourselves away. How well are we doing life together as family? Where are we sacrificially loving our neighbourhood? Let's celebrate where we see this. And let's practice generosity so that people will experience King Jesus. We will be raised to new life and reconciled completely. We will live forever with King Jesus. We have a certain hope. How is that future hope shaping our community life now? Mm. Where are we bringing God's kingdom on earth? Let's live with expectation. Mm. And let's have the confidence to embrace the new reality of King Jesus even now. Mm. Amen? Amen. Amen. We want to finish this morning with a prayer and it's a prayer that you should be familiar with by now because we've been praying it every week of this series. Uh, and today we actually want to give you a copy of this prayer. I'm going to hand them out at the door on the way out and we would love you to take this prayer home with you and keep it and pray it. Uh, put it in your Bible if you still use a paper Bible <laughs> or put it on your fridge or put it on your pin board. But we would love together as a community to say this story, this big story of God is not just a story that we read in the pages of the Bible. And it's not even just a story that we talk about and celebrate and declare when we gather together week by week. But this is the story that we live out of and that we are praying would be made known in yeah. and through us. So let's pray. Let's pray. King Jesus, you imagined us to love you, restored us when we didn't. And you invite us to partner with you in the renewing of all things. Thank you for adopting us as daughters and sons and placing us here in this family. We want to overflow with love for others and bring peace and justice in our world as we practice living as your kingdom people. Lead us to be more generous, more hopeful, more like you, so that you will be known as king in our neighbourhood. For we know you will do far, far more 
than we ask or even imagine. Amen.